Today I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Kaner. Dr. Kaner is a UCLA chemistry material science professor and researcher. He's an expert on graphene and supercapacitors. Uh, in fact, he actually has the first patent ever on graphene, if you can believe that. And we had a really cool conversation about the future of technology, about the applications of graphene. I, I brought up the space elevator and talked to him about that. And also picked his brain on some insights that undergraduates might use to make the most out of UCLA and life as a whole. So tune in and thanks for listening. You're listening to the Elder Llama podcast, the show that inspires curious minds to ponder the secrets of the universe. My name is Erica Mezqua. I'm a UCLA undergrad STEM major. And in this podcast, I combine my knowledge of astrophysics, evolutionary biology, and the nature of the human mind to make cohesive observations about the world. Okay, here we go. Five, four, three, two. Dr. Kaner, nice to meet you. Good to meet you. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm happy to do this. I've heard several of your previous podcasts, and they're very exciting. Yes, I, I, I've yet to have a materials engineer on here, but uh, I've got a lot of questions on graphene and the future of technology, and uh, I think we're in for quite the treat. Um, so tell me, how is research life at UCLA right now during the COVID era? Well, of course, things are very difficult during COVID, but graduate students are allowed back in the lab. So are undergraduates who are grandfathered in. So I still have a good number of people working in the lab under some very strict safety precautions. Uh, but we're making a lot of progress. So I'm, I'm happy, but I'm very pleased to see that the restrictions are beginning to be lifted and hopefully we'll be back at full strength soon. Yeah, definitely. It, it seems like the world's kind of opening up again. I've been going to restaurants. Restaurants are largely open. Um, the CDC is relaxing on their restrictions. Hopefully we'll be back on campus by fall. Um, so things are kind of getting back, back to business as usual in the research world. Yes. Um, unfortunately, from the undergraduate perspective, they've relaxed the restrictions to allow four undergraduates in each lab. But I actually can't redo my lab because I already had six undergraduates grandfathered in. So I've had undergraduates working with us, but most of the people are working remotely. They're, they're doing calculations, they're doing writing, they're doing all sorts of things other than actually mixing chemicals together. Mm. And what does business as usual look like for you? Um, if you came to my lab, each of my labs has six fume hoods. And so usually people are working in those with chemicals because you, you don't want to be breathing any of these materials. Uh, and so you're mixing things up. We're particularly interested in solids. And so we often use furnaces. So you mix up some formulations, you heat them up, you turn them to other things, and then you start making measurements. And those could be how much energy does something store? How high temperature does it last? What kind of properties does it have? Right, that eventually you have batteries that change the world. Well, that's on the horizon, right? Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll definitely be talking about that. Um, first, we'll get into some more uh, general stuff. Do you like working at UCLA? Oh, I love working at UCLA. 
I've been here 34 years and um, yeah, it, it, every day something's different. It's fun doing the teaching. Um, it's great fun doing the research and it's especially good working with graduate students and undergraduates in the lab. Okay, and I also love UCLA. I think if somebody were to ask me the same question, I'd probably come off as the greatest UCLA salesman out there. Um, so why UCLA as opposed to other institutions? So UCLA has a very collaborative spirit. In fact, I've worked with many other professors. I've written papers with over 40 other UCLA professors. I always wonder if that's some, some sort of record, but we love to collaborate because my research is making new materials. And when you make a new material, you have no idea what the properties are gonna be like. You have some idea what you're after, but when you actually make the material, you suddenly realize, okay, well, this material is extremely hard or this material stores a lot of energy. And each of the things that it does, I am unlikely to have the right equipment to analyze that kind of material. However, somebody in, let's say in engineering, I'm in the chemistry department, chemistry and biochemistry, but somebody in engineering could be chemical engineering or mechanical engineering or materials engineering. They probably have the equipment that I need. And so every time I call up another UCLA professor, they're like, yeah, come use our equipment. And then they get excited and we start collaborating. And this has happened. I've worked with medical school professors. I've worked with physics professors, people from pharmacology, people from you know places that you would be um, earth and space science. So all different departments. That is great to hear. Uh, it seems like at an institution like this, people, uh, of course, specialize in like one very specific thing and they become the expert on that thing. I think um, one of my professors, Dr. Phelan from the biology department, he once put it this way, uh, in, a P in a PhD program, you learn more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. And that's the case with everybody. You know, all these experts, yourself included, um, you probably know more about this one thing in this very specific field. And that's super necessary. And together, when you guys collaborate, you turn into this huge, like, hive mind super machine that is just pushing human technology forward. So I, I think that's a good way to look at it. I think you can't, these days, you can't know everything about everything. And so you know a lot about something small and you know who else is out there or you find who else is out there who knows what you don't and what you need. And you work with them and UCLA is just a great place for doing that. And it's always been that way. And for example, it, it, it depends on the leadership and the culture. So if, at, if you come up for tenure and they ask, what did you do as opposed to what did you accomplish? You get a very different answer. So if you ask, what did you accomplish? So, well, I worked with these professors and those professors and, and together we came up with this thing. But if it wasn't for me, that wouldn't have happened. And so that's what UCLA is asking. What, what have you accomplished? Not what did you accomplish by yourself? Mm. Yes, I think from a student's perspective, I also get a very, very similar vibe um, I've never run into anybody who's like, who doesn't want to share notes with you or who isn't eager to help you or willing to help. And that's really relieving because I've heard of some colleges that are very cutthroat in terms of like peer to peer interactions 
which it, it just seems very kind of productive. You know, like we're all here to learn. We might as well learn together because that way we will uh, we will learn more in the end. And our our goal is truth, right? I absolutely agree. And it, it's a cultural thing. And UCLA has a great culture for collaboration and it goes um, throughout. I and mean, I'm glad to hear it's all the way to the undergraduate level. Yes, it sure is. Well, go Bruins. You heard it here fo- first, folks. I first found out about you over Reddit, actually. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I had posted on the UCLA subreddit. I asked the question, who is your favorite UCLA professor and why? I want to have a conversation with them for my podcast. And somebody responded, Dr. Richard Kaner changed my life. And it got a lot of upvotes. So I just want to let you know that people like you, you're doing something right teaching. And I started looking into you, looking into your work, of course, materials engineering, graphing, supercapacitors, and we'll get all into that. Um, do you? So it's obvious that the UCLA students like you and I think the way they responded and reacted to that comment, it makes me assume that the way that you teach, it's much more than just like a class, right? Because university, college is, is really about the experiences and the connections you make. And it seems like your class is more of uh, how to be a good human, right? And then on top of that, you learn some chemistry and uh, whatever else it is you teach. Um, so usually students like you, why do you like teaching? What is teaching for you at UCLA? Oh, I've always liked teaching. And I also, one thing with about the human condition is we love to tell stories. And so you can turn a lesson into, into a story. And so, for example, when I give a lecture tomorrow, I will talk about um, a famous scientist, uh, Sir Rudolph Pyrrhus. And Pyrrhus was famous because he, he worked on um, the bomb project during World War II. And then he came up with this theorem that explains how one-dimensional materials conduct electricity. And so when I'm describing this to the students, then I'll tell them that when I was an assistant professor, I had a call one day from the physics department. Professor Kaner, we have somebody here who we think you'd like to meet. I'm like, who's that? And they said, Sir Rudolph Pyrrhus. And my first reaction was, surely he must have been dead for you know, thirty years, but no, he was he w- was a kid when he developed. To, when I say a kid, he was probably in his twenties when he developed these theories, and he came to see me, and we had a great conversation because I my PhD was on the first conducting polymers, which was a one-dimensional material, and we used his theories to understand these materials. So you can you can turn something that is you know a little bit dry, some equations and so on, into a really interesting story because I could talk about actually meeting this guy, and now on Zoom I can put up his picture with with other famous physicists that that he's talking to. Excellent. Yes, t- teaching is much more than just conveying information. I think it's a mode of service. Like it seems like the 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 human brain has been evolutionarily wired to enjoy teaching. It's our means of transmitting information from generation to generation. And it's probably like one of the main reasons why humans are such a dominant organism. It's culture, it's transmission of information. And that's that's amazing that you enjoy doing that. Because, you know, a teacher who is able to convey these lessons in a manner that is interesting and emotional and actually... Um, is like human, I think it's much more powerful. And I, I wonder, has 
COVID affected your ability to do that? Well, one of the things when I taught in a large classroom is I, I did what were called podcasts. So people who couldn't attend the lecture or wanted to review it could go listen to it. But I refused to have the audio part, I'm sorry, the video part done because I decided once they taped my lectures, why would they need me? And uh, what I learned during COVID is now we everybody does lectures via Zoom. And, and so we have audio and video and it's actually quite interesting. You can do a lot more things. I'll give you an example. In, in class, I wanted to show that if you get to nanoparticles that they can easily oxidize. And so I do this experiment where I bring flour and I light it on fire. And actually flour doesn't burn, nothing happens. It just turns brown and then black and you smell the, the smell of burnt bread. And then I turn off the lights and I take a long glass tube and I sift the flour down the tube and at the bottom's a candle. And when that finely divided flour hits the candle, then it does catch on fire and flames shoot out at the top. And it's very dramatic. Well, on Zoom, I can do that online. There's a professor in England who is doing this in front of an audience and, and it's even more dramatic. But after I mentioned this, my son said, oh, dad, you know, you gotta go see what Mythbusters done. So I looked what Mythbusters had done and they got a truckload of non-dairy creamer and a giant airplane fan. And they took this and they blew this in the air and they lit it on fire and they made the biggest fireball you've ever seen. And so now I can play their video on Zoom after describing what, what we learned about how nanomaterials will catch on fire. And so it makes it, you know, if I tell you platinum metal, which is inert like, like gold, if you make it a finely divided enough, even a metal can catch on fire. Um, and, you know, aluminum, which we use aluminum foil, it seems like the most stable thing. It's the incendiary material used in fireworks. So if aluminum is finely divided, it oxidizes very rapidly. However, when you have a sheet of it, the oxide is more dense, the aluminum oxide is more dense than the underlying aluminum. And so just a, a monolayer or two is enough to protect that aluminum from further oxidation. So you can, you can see how this goes. Right, yeah, I imagine you can't, you won't be allowed to de do that demonstration uh, in Young Hall, have a massive fireball. No, I we, we we couldn't do that. Just just a small one. Right, right. So, can you tell me a little bit about how students have changed, or how your interaction with students have changed with online instruction? And uh, afterwards, I'll give you my perspective as a student on how I feel my, uh, my instruction has changed. So, I think some people do very well online. Others get a bit lost. It's very distracting to be at home and not in a classroom. But what I found is, so I always tell people that if you want to make sure that people feel like their questions get answered and they actually do get answered, to be available after every class. So when I teach a class in young halls, sometimes in large lecture halls, if I prefer to teach them in the afternoon because sometimes there's no class after me and then I'll just stick around for the next hour and answer the questions. But even if there is, I just take people out in the courtyard and I'll stand around with my models and answer questions as long as it takes. And so I found that as a very effective way to teach and to interact with students. Well, it turns out you can do the same thing on Zoom. So what I do is I give the lecture, we get some questions 
And after the lecture, I take a five minute break and then I come back and I have an office hour and I'll record it so people can't attend. And uh, a number of people do attend and they ask questions. And so we go back and forth on, on, on Zoom and um, it works quite well. And if I need PowerPoint slides, I can call those up and, and, and other things. So I, I think there is a way to communicate with the students. I'll also mention other things in case there's other faculty. Um, I, I discovered an interesting way of teaching a reasonably large lecture that people, I assumed everybody had figured this out, but apparently not. So I make my one of my grad students who's the TA for the course, they're the host because they know what they're doing. And I'm the co-host. And so I'll be giving um, the lecture. But when people have questions, I mean, if they have an urgent question, they can just, you know, say it. But usually most people don't want to interrupt the professor. So what they do is they'll write it in the chat. And then my student will take a look at what's in the chat and reinterpret that at the right moment for a question. Like if I take a pause or I'm going to switch a slide, and they will do it in such a way that that question will become a very good question, whether, whether it was a very good question or was you know just to clarify something. And by doing that, we found it's been very effective. People li like that because they get their questions answered in real time, but it doesn't interrupt the flow of the lecture. Mm. So I just assumed everybody was doing this because I discovered this very quickly, but... Uh, I, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to have at least a teaching assistant with the class will, willing to put in the a bit of effort. But it works well. The students seem to like it. Right. Yeah, that does seem like a good system. In my experience, um, I, I've had there's a lot of people who complain about on your online classes. And, you know, really most of my peers, I feel like who or most of my friends, they're like, I, I, I hate online classes. I can't do this. Like, I'm so over it, stuff like that. But I don't know. I think if, if you really want to learn, you can most certainly learn. Like teachers are available. Um, you know, the work is online for you. If you want to learn, it's possible. Now, with that being said, I do think there is an element that is missing from uh, in like online school versus actually being in person. When I'm in a lecture class, let's say like physics, 99% of people have their cameras off. So it's like, Usually it's like me and the professor, like, and it's just us two with the cameras off, uh, almost like office hours, uh, which is kind of nice. But I think being in a room where all your peers are there and they're all they're they're all focusing, they're all looking at the same thing. Um, I think just by association, just kind of being in that environment, you're more driven to learn and focus. And like, even if you don't notice it, you're kind of just you learn better and you are better. So we don't really have that right now. You know, most people have their cameras off. But it's not bad, you know, like I think we can make the most of it. However, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm ready to be back on campus. Hopefully by the fall, we'll be on Bruin Walk, um, talking to peers, being around young people. For me, that's most, really most of the college experience is being like in an environment where you, you learn from people and you meet people, and make connections. Yeah, there's, there's no question that a lot of learning goes on outside the classroom and sometimes it goes on, you know, just talking to your neighbor before or after class or sometimes even during class. Or as you said, you know, you meet people for lunch, you run into people randomly, all sorts of things happen that just don't happen online. Mm, yes.
All right, so as we delve deeper into this, uh, why don't you tell everybody what it is that you do? Ah, okay. So I am a chemist, but I also have a joint appointment in material science and engineering. And we work on making new materials. So we work in three main areas. We work with conducting plastics, polymers. We work with super hard metals. And we work with new forms of carbon, especially for storing energy. Excellent. And how did you first get into chemistry? So it's an interesting story. I was a freshman in college and I was bored in freshman chemistry. So probably the third week of school, I went into the chair's office and I said, I'm bored in freshman chemistry. The chair of the department said, well, have you had uh, thermodynamics and kinetics? Well, I knew what those meant. So I said, yes. I said, well, then I don't think you should be in freshman chemistry. I said, that's what I thought. Can I do research? He said, oh, we do have a research program, but it's all filled. I said, well, there must be somebody. So he sent me to the head of that research program who gave me the same story. I said, there must be somebody. And he said, you know, come to think of it, there's this one chemistry professor who's not in the chemistry building, he's in, in the engineering building. Why don't you go see him? So I went over and his name's Aaron Wold. And he said, I've got a project for you. And he said, grow these crystals. And if you have any questions, ask this senior undergraduate. So I got worked on growing crystals and it was on a different floor with his labs were on the sixth floor, but he had one on the third floor where I was. And about a month later, he runs into me in the hall and he said, any luck with those crystals? And I said, yeah. And he came down and he took a look and he couldn't believe that I had grown these crystals because found out later he had given this to a grad student who wasn't able to grow crystals. Um, anyway, that was it. I was hired. I spent four years in his lab. At the end of my first year, um, during the first summer, I measured the electrical properties with one postdoctoral fellow. I measured magnetic with a senior graduate student. I measured optical properties with another person. We wrote a paper and they said, you grew the crystals, we're putting your name first. So I, at the end of my first year, I had a, a first author paper published in, in a scientific journal. And I didn't realize how unusual that was till years later, but uh, I managed to publish several more as an undergrad. So I had a great experience and that's how I got into chemistry. And it's also one of the reasons why I think it's important to take undergraduates in the lab. And I always have five or six undergraduates at any time working in my lab. That's impressive. That sounds like true chemist natural uh, in the making. And obviously you've done great work, which we'll get into. Um, so did chemistry kind of come natural to you? Was it like intuitive for you? Had you ever grown crystals or did you just like start, oh, this makes sense. And eventually you had a full crystal. I had no idea. I, when I got to college, I was much more interested in biology than chemistry. Um, but I quickly realized that when I, when I set in on bio courses that I just, it wasn't really for me. I don't even think the chemistry courses were all that exciting but it was the research in the lab that kept me going. And so then I decided I, I should probably major in chemistry. So I, you know, if it hadn't been for the research, there's no way I would have become a chemist. And then it was sort of interesting that I kept in touch with this senior undergrad who had helped help me get started. Um, and he told me he had gone to the University of Pennsylvania and um, he told me they just made this big discovery. I should get my degree and get over there. So I went over, they had just discovered the first plastic that conducted electricity. And so I spent my PhD working on that. And it was a really cool thing to work on. And 20 years after I finished my PhD, 
my advisor and co-advisor shared the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the first conducting plastics. So it was a very exciting time. And so a lot of times when you're going through and tr trying to figure out what you're going to do, opportunities just kind of show up. And sometimes you have to decision to make, do I take this? Do I take that? And I like to tell people, if you have a very difficult decision to make, you don't know if you should go to this school or that school, or take this job or that job, it probably makes no difference. Either one's probably the correct decision. You can look back later and say, oh, what if I had done this or what if I had done that? But, but any of these things moves you in, in a certain direction and uh, you, you end up at a certain place, but it's, it's usually for the best. Right. At the end of the day, whatever decision you made is the right decision because that's the one you took. That's a path you're on. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you one more story about the crystals because you'll probably get a kick out of this. You asked if I had any special knowledge of growing crystals. I had no knowledge whatsoever of growing crystals. I just figured out how to grow them. But when he came down, I was growing them in essentially jello. So I was using slow diffusion. And I was doing this in a fish tank to control the temperature. And when he pulled out the first tube, he was like, this is amazing because I actually grew the crystals. And then he pulled out the next tube and he said, this is even more amazing. And he went and he said, don't tell me, you varied the pH. No, you did. And he went through all sorts of possibilities. And I was so embarrassed. I hadn't done an experiment. I just grew the crystals. So it never occurred to me, the scientific method is you don't just grow crystals, but you vary the pH or you vary some concentration or something so that you can see what grows better crystals. But no, he told me to grow crystals. So that's all I did. Anyway, I learned what science was at that point, and I never made that mistake again. From then on, whenever I do an experiment, it's actually an experiment, not just a following some recipe. Hmm, that's very interesting. You know, that reminds me of, um, th th I watched a video uh, a while ago, and it was this competition to make this tower out of like, out of toothpicks or some like wooden popsicle sticks. And you had a, the challenge was to, hang a marshmallow like a few feet up without it falling, right? You have to build a structure with the with the popsicle sticks. And it was kindergartners versus like adults, right? The adults could not do it. After the time limit was, time limit was up, they had failed. Nobody had gotten it up. But the kindergartners, they were thriving. Like a bunch of their groups had succeeded. And the question was like, why? why? How is this possible? They're kindergartners. And what they found was that each group had totally different strategies. So the the uh, adults, what they try to do is, what they try to do was build the tower first and then put the marshmallow on top. But when they looked at the kindergartners, what they did was immediately from the start, put the marshmallow on there and then just keep trying it and like fix the tower and put the marshmallow again. And they tried and tried from the beginning. They just started doing it. And I think that gives us a little bit of insight into the wonder of young people doing this work. They haven't been conditioned in whatever procedures to that, that will limit their way of thinking. And there's just like unfiltered creativity. So you, you go in there as a freshman and you just start doing these crystals. And then by the end of the day, you realize like, wow, that, this is an amazing crystal. You, you just reminded me of an interesting story. So I don't know if you know about Bruin Woods and Lake Arrowhead, but UCLA owns a conference center. And during the summer, alumni and are, are invited to spend a week up, up there. It's a great vacation spot. And UCLA holds conferences there. So if you ever get a chance to go up there, it's, it's definitely worth it. But professors get to go as a professor in residence. And you give three lectures 
to one group and then they leave and the next group comes in, you give the same three lectures to the next group. So I was the professor in residence one time and I was giving a, a lecture on carbon 60, new forms of carbon and carbon 60 is the one that forms a geodesic dome. It looks like a soccer ball and a very fascinating material. So that evening they had what were called adult games. You were divided up into four groups of like 25 people and you had to perform a task with those 25 people. And one of them we show up and there's a giant piece of cardboard, a bag of raw spaghetti, like two pounds of spaghetti and a thing of um, gummy bears or gummy, you know, the, and the object, the idea was to build the tallest freestanding object you could in the 15 minutes that were allowed. And immediately somebody said, oh, I was at this lecture today with this UCLA professor and he said the geodesic dome, we must build a geodesic dome. Well, I was there and I'm like, oh no, this is not quite right. But people were building and they were trying to figure out how to do it. Oh, there were toothpicks available too. And so it turns out that what you really wanted to do was take the toothpick and make a little hole and put the spaghetti in and reinforce it and build a structure. But in fact, when we came together, they described what the different groups were doing. And they talked about the guy who kept sticking the, the spaghetti in and they would break and then he would start eating the spaghetti to kind of hide the evidence of the broken thing. Turned out it, it was a, a thing to see how groups work together as a sociology experiment. And they described what everybody was doing at the end and it was, it was hilarious. But, but I'm not surprised that the kindergartners could do better than the adults because they had no preconceptions of what was the right thing to do. Right. Sometimes we just have to play and then discover the inner, inner genius that already exists. Okay. So I want to get into your work a little bit. You said you study superconductors, supercapacitors, uh, carbon-based carbon energy storage. Why did you choose to focus on these fields? So my start was in what's called solid-state chemistry, so making new solids. So we're interested in ones that could, could eventually be useful. So for example, my postdoctoral work was in new forms of carbon. And at the time, now carbon is a very important topic, but at the time people thought almost everything important that had been done at carbon had been already accomplished. And then came along carbon 60, as I mentioned, this geodesic dome. And after that came carbon nanotubes, which is just very thin layers of carbon rolled up. And then most recently is graphene, a single layer carbon. And each of these seems to have different properties in different applications. So I can tell you how I got into graphene because I think that's an interesting story. So you may know that graphene was discovered by Novoselov and Geim in 2004 when they took a block of graphite and they peeled it with scotch tape. And they continued to peel until they eventually got down to a single layer. And then they studied the physics of that and six years later, they won the Nobel Prize in physics in 2010. But as I like to say, UCLA is a great place and four years before they actually did their work on, on graphene, I got a knock on my door. And it was a professor from mechanical engineering. His name's Tom Hahn. And he said he was told that our, I was the resident expert in carbon at UCLA. And I said, well, I've worked on carbon a long time. As I just said, my postdoctoral work was on new forms of carbon. He said, good, can you make me a single layer? I said, probably, but why would you want it? 
And he said, well, at the time, everybody's using these carbon nanotubes to reinforce polymers. And the problem with a carbon nanotube is a one-dimensional object. And he said, a one-dimensional object is not a good thing to reinforce polymers. Even if you could make it cheaply, you would have to orient it into a two-dimensional object to get it to work. And he showed me these mechanical calculations he had done that showed one-dimensional object didn't work very well, but a two-dimensional object did. So he said, how could you make a single layer carbon? And I said, well, graphite is a layered material. It's been known for about 100 years that you can intercalate ions inside. So I said, I just choose an ion that I could then remove. I could exfoliate. He said, that's a brilliant idea. You got to do that. So we did that and with a couple of my graduate students. And we figured out that how to blow apart the layers. And when we sonicated those layers, they would scroll. So in 2003, the year before Navasov and Geim did their work, we published a paper in science called a, a chemical route to carbon nanoscrolls. And we showed how thin layers would scroll. But before we published that paper, I applied for a patent on how to make graphene. So I have the world's first graphene patent filed two years before Navasov and Geim discovered graphene. So I have the world's first graphene patent filed two years before Navasov and Geim discovered graphene. Yo. That is crazy. That is the real deal right there, folks. Now, what the heck is sonicate? And could you explain what scrolls are? Sure. So first, let's start with sonication. If you have a jewelry cleaner at home or you go into a jeweler, it, you put sound waves through water, usually soapy water. And if you put your rings in there, those sound waves, the vibrations will cause all the dirt to come off. So we use this often in a chemistry lab. So sonication is putting sound waves and you can get, you can turn up the intensity and it's really good way to mix things together. So we use it all the time and you can get high intensity sonication equipment. Okay, and what is this? Why should we care about graphene? What is it good for? Yeah, well, that that, that is a good question. So it's of great, scientific interest because a single layer carbon has some very unusual properties. And Novosov and Geim earned their Nobel Prize in physics because they showed that certain things when, when you ran current across and so on were quantized with, with a single layer of, of graphene. But why we should care is because if you can scale up graphene massively, you can make all sorts of interesting objects. We're particularly interested in energy storage but you can actually use it for reinforcement, just like Professor Hahn said. And so people are looking at graphene, they're putting it into all sorts of different things to reinforce polymers. You know, you could even stick it in car tires to make them last longer. You could put it in steel to improve its properties and you can make electronic devices. And so people are looking at electronic paper, they're looking at electronic inks, electronic glues, so there's all sorts of ways that a little bit of carbon, which in theory is very inexpensive, could massively improve things that we already, that already exist today. So you said electronic inks. Does that mean you could make, potentially make circuits by like just drawing them on paper or something? Yeah, that's correct. In fact, we have a, a paper on, you can take a, a very cheap printer and we can print electronic circuits using our graphene-based inks. And you can take, these days you can get inexpensive 3D printers. So we and many other groups are looking at printing 3D batteries. So at some point you'll, you'll have a recipe at home and you can print your own battery if you like. 
Wow, that's amazing. So I watched one of your uh, videos online as I was researching you, preparing for this, and uh, I stumbled upon a video that you had with Grant and, Ma- Grant and Mahara from the Mythbusters. And you guys talked about supercapacitors. And I think you said that it's possible to charge a graphene supercapacitor for three seconds and light or charge a light bulb for up to five minutes. What is going on there? So first, a couple of things. When I got contacted by Grant Imahara, I had to ask my son, who's Grant Imahara? And he said, oh, he's the guy on Mythbusters who makes all the really cool gadgets. You must you must invite him to your lab. And so when I told him that, he said, my son must come along because, you know, we'll, he'll he'll talk to him too. Unfortunately, as you know, Grant Imahara is no longer with us, um, which is unfortunate, but he did, he's he's does some really, he made some really cool videos and did some amazing work for Mythbusters. So what he was interested in is exactly what you said. How could you possibly charge a thing for a few seconds and run light bulb for, for quite a while? Well, it turns out that graphene is one of the best electrical conductors around. And it also stores charge. It has very high capacitance. And so you need two electrodes because you've got to separate the charge and then later on you'll get it back, but it's very efficient at storing energy. And so we can charge things. It has very low internal resistance. So we can charge things very quickly and we can discharge them much more slowly. So we're not creating energy. We're just storing the energy, but an LED is a very efficient form of lighting. And so it doesn't take a lot of energy. You have to have a threshold voltage and then a certain amount of current, but we can pack that current into a graphene-based supercapacitor. And so that's the promise. If we can have supercapacitors or batteries made out of graphene, you know, someday you'll be able to charge your electric vehicle as fast as you fill up with gas. What's keeping us from being there, right? Like the, the information's already there. We already know that it's possible. How can we make that a reality such that, so that we're driving these cars? Well, so it's one thing to go into a laboratory and make a little tiny device. It's another to scale something massively and make it cheap enough so that everybody can use it. And so therein is the challenge. So basically in my lab, we do some very basic research. We also are interested in in applications of it. So we collaborate with companies. In fact, I've started a few of my own. And what happens is we show how these materials can actually do this storage properties, what you need to add to them to get it to work well, And then this information is licensed to companies. And then those companies go and develop it and they try to massively scale it. And in order to do that, they need lots of capital. And so they have to get investors and they have to figure out how eventually they're gonna make a profit by selling these things. So there's a lot involved. I mean, it's one thing to do research and show in a scientific paper with a really small scale how something works but it's totally another thing to, to scale it massively and show how we can how get people interested in purchasing it because it's, it's good and also beating the competition because if you have an idea, somebody else will probably have a, a similar idea. Right, and that's something that you're actually trying to do, right? You're trying to get from some of your work in the lab to products that are available for consumption. Uh, tell us a little bit about your companies. Sure. So in recent years, we've started three companies. 
And UCLA, when I first got here, wasn't real interested in, in patents and company formation. But in the past 20 years, they've gotten very interested. And one of the reasons is that the amount of grant funding from the government has been pretty flat. And yet a lot of universities, smaller ones, have gotten interested in getting funding that way. And so the competitions for grants have become very competitive. It's very hard to get funding. And so the amount of money coming to any university has been pretty um, flat over the past few years. UCLA has done well. We've, we're one of the top 10 universities in the country with over a billion dollars in research funding. But there's a limit to how much that can grow. However, private funding is another, another source of, of funding. And so it's possible to bring in more money if you work with private companies. So what we've done with my own research is after about 20 years of basic research, I got very interested in can this materials be applied? And I got especially interested in this because I used to go to conferences and friends of mine from my days in PhDs are working for private companies. And they say, oh, you know, we've been very interested in your latest series of results. And we're now using this to, to develop these products. And I said, oh, would you like to license the patent? And they, no, we don't need to, we just work around it. And so I suddenly realized that if my work is actually gonna be useful, I'm gonna to have to do this myself in some, some sense. And so UCLA has become this very much more entrepreneurial campus. They started about 20 years ago, holding lectures for faculty and others interested in, in how to start companies. And they have our technology development group, our patent office has become much more active in helping people start companies. And so students can start companies and they can work with faculty to start companies and staff can do this. And UCLA has become one of the most productive campuses as far as starting companies. Over 20 companies a year have been spun out of UCLA in the past uh, dozen years. So with my own companies, we're doing three different things. So after 20 years of work, we've developed the world's hardest metal. So we have a metal that's hard enough to scratch diamond. And so we realized that that metal, because it can be made cheaply and because a metal can be cut using something called electric discharge machining, basically any good machine shop has one of these. It's an electric wire and underwater, it will cut through a metal like butter. It never even touches, it's just the electric field that cuts it. And so we're interested in developing these materials. So we started a company called Supermetallics and Supermetallics has licensed all our patents and they have scaled up these materials they're shipping them to companies around the world and they're selling stuff for polishing and cutting and drilling and, and so on. So we're excited about that. We have another company, Nanotech Energy, that is using the graphene for energy storage purposes. And with them, we have developed a non-flammable electrolyte for lithium ion batteries. So we can put graphene into lithium ion batteries. We can put this non-flammable electrolyte. So if you've see, seen these pictures of Tesla's catching on fire or cell phones catching on fire or computers, um, we believe we can eliminate that problem because we have, we, we have a battery that operates better than what's out there, but non-flammable. So we're very excited about that. Well, I can imagine research into these batteries and like I said, the scaling of these batteries could have some pretty amazing applications for the real world. Like you mentioned, being able to charge a car and how long it takes to fill up on gas, having phones that will never blow up on you. 
Um, and some other applications I can think of involve something that we might use in combating climate change, and that is storing this clean energy from windmills and from solar cells in very efficient batteries uh, such that we can use this energy even when the sun is not shining. Do you see your efforts with nanotech energy helping us with uh, the, the climate crisis? Yeah. So as you point out, there's inexpensive ways of making electricity that are green, and those are solar and wind. And they're, they cost less than fossil fuels. The trouble is that the sun doesn't shine all the time, the wind doesn't blow all the time, so we need to store that energy. And graphene is probably could provide the solution to that when coupled with other materials because it's earth abundant, it's, it's relatively cheap, it's quite safe. And so the idea is if you can find efficient energy storage devices and then massively scale them. And so that's one of the things that nanotech energy is involved in. And so I believe we will see that coming in the next few years, that there will be ways of storing energy that, that continue to make wind and solar much more efficient. And so that we can more quickly phase out the burning of fossil fuels. That's inspiring to hear that there's efforts out there. And I think it seems like private companies are uh, are the way right now because, you know, like you said, there's limited funding from the feds. And if we want to do any, make any change, we need capital. And so it's, it's great to hear about all these private companies uh, really putting an effort to help us with, with this climate crisis. And, and that just kind of rem- reminds me of like how what a privilege it is to be at UCLA because this is the number one public university in the world. And, you know, sometimes I forget that. I just kind of get up, get caught up in my studies and my work. Um, and you kind of like forget, right? You don't look up to see where you are. So it's great to be able to be in an environment where stuff like that is taking place. What other applications for graphene do you see in the future? So I've been to conferences where there are companies, 100 different companies come for all different applications. A lot of them are putting graphene inside of other materials. So reinforcing polymers, improving the properties of steel, using them for things that prevent oxidation. So basically, you know, coating other materials with, with graphene. Um, as I said, you can have conducting polymer, you can have conducting inks, e-inks that are based on graphene. We're actually, the company that I helped found, Nanotech Energy, is actually selling conducting glues at this point. And you can imagine, you know, if your electronic circuit board breaks, you have to go in there, or somebody does, with a soldering iron, and that can really mess things up. But imagine having a conducting glue or conducting epoxy that you just simply put and you can reconnect any circuits at room temperature. And so that those are actually for sale already. And so graphene enables those to be much more effective and, and work quite well. So I, I see a lot of applications. It all depends on massively scaling the graphene at a cheap price. The only way to do that is chemistry. So originally, as I told you, Navasov and Gaim peeled graphene with scotch tape. Well, that's not really a, a scalable process. It's great for doing physics, but the only way to scale it is to do chemistry. And so we and others have developed processes where we can massively scale the graphene. And now nanotech energy can produce that graphene 
literally on a ton scale. And uh, of course, as it starts going into batteries, we're going to need megatons of that material. So when somebody uses another form of graphene, the graphene's the same, right? I mean, it's the same compound, but is it rather, it's the process of manufacturing the graphene that they patent? So that is a good question. Is it the same thing? So technically what graphene is, is a single layer of carbon. It's supposed to be perfect. When we make it, it and you can't make a, a perfect single layer of carbon, but the question is, do you have one layer? Do you have two layers? Do you have three layers? Do you have 10 layers? And so our company, Nanotech Energy, using our patented process, can now massively scale it. And they can demonstrate that over 95% of the graphene that they make is single layer. And the rest is you're going to have a certain number of things that just kind of fold on themselves or, or land randomly on another piece. And so you'll get a few double layers. But if you look out there, what other companies are doing, they don't have graphene. They are selling you thin layer graphite. They call it graphene because it's a marketing ploy is all we can figure. And if you're reinforcing tires with it or you're reinforcing something, maybe you can get away with a hundred layer thick material, or maybe you can even get away with a 10 layer thick material. But it turns out for most applications and especially energy storage, unless you're down to one layer, you're not getting the benefit of graphene. And in fact, with a supercapacitor, if you go for two layers, you lose half the surface area. You lose half the top and half the bottom as far as mass goes. And so you lose half the storage capacity. And if you have four layers, you're down to a quarter of the storage capacity. So making real graphene is critical for energy storage. But besides our process, there are other ways to approach it. And I can't tell you, I, as far as I can see, everything we've acquired, we're the only ones who can make really high quality. But I can't rule out that somebody won't find another process to do it. But I know that graphene is exceedingly good for energy storage. And so, as I'm telling you, whether it's ours or somebody else's, it will massively improve energy storage. You may not know it, because if they start sticking it into the battery that goes into your cell phone and starts lasting longer, you'll be happy that it lasts longer, but you won't even think about it. It just means you'll keep your cell phone for three years instead of two years, because it's usually when the battery goes, when you say, oh, maybe I need a new cell phone. You probably don't. You probably just need a new battery, but the manufacturers are happy that, that uh, it's sort of like planned obsolescence. Some other applications that I've heard of regarding graphene, and you'll tell me if this is total uh, BS, but I've heard about what is called the space elevator. And this is an idea um, that is pretty much building an elevator from the surface of Earth all the way to outer space. And the idea is that we would be able to put really heavy payloads in there, crank the sucker and carry stuff all the way out to outer space. And that would allow us to circumvent the problem of like, you know, really inefficient propulsion to carry tons of payload into outer space. And now you can just lift it with an elevator. So, and I know what you guys might be thinking, listening at home, that this is total like science fiction. Um, but there's actually been scientific papers, like peer-reviewed papers on this. And the idea is actually being considered. Um, now, one thing that's that's wrong with this, one thing uh, that's the fly in the pudding, is that the, our materials right now are currently not strong enough to support such a structure. But what, what I've heard of is that graphene and carbon nanotubes might offer a solution that will make the space elevator potentially real. So everything you said is true. 
So the physics is there. If one could make a carbon nanotube or a piece of graphene, a perfect piece that was long enough to go into space, it would actually be stiff enough that you could use it as a space elevator. So people have done the physics calculations, that all works. The problem is the materials properties. We have no idea how to make a carbon nanotube that's even you know, long enough to, to put between your fingers. So you can't make something an inch long, a perfect carbon nanotube. If you could, that would be really amazing. So it, at this point, what you're discussing, the physics is correct, but it's science fiction. Now, that being said, when I was a kid, one of the things I was always interested, there was a comic strip character near, named Dick Tracy. And Dick Tracy had a watch. And that watch, he could touch it and he could talk to anybody he wanted. And so I always thought this would be really cool if someday I had a Dick Tracy watch. Well, today you can go get a Dick Tracy watch, right? You can get an Apple watch or another brand and you can use it as a, as a phone. You can use it as an internet connection. You can use it as everything. And uh, so yesterday's science fiction could be today's science. So I, I, won't, I won't dismiss it, but it's not, it's not happening as far anytime soon. Right. And that, that's what excites me, you know, to, to learn that there were skeptics about the airplane and that, oh, you, you'll never fly. You're a human. Like you, we were meant on the ground. We don't have wings. What are you going to do up there? You'll fall. But of course, now air travel is so common. Like you don't even think about it. And in 13 hours, you could be across the world. So there's something we know that it's that humans are pretty bad at predicting the future. So who knows? Maybe one day we'll have these incredible um, space elevators that, that take up payloads into outer space. Um, and that would be the beginning of, I guess, a large presence for humans in outer space. Is there anything else in your field of study that excites you for the future? Yeah, so I'll tell you about one other company that we've developed is called Hydrophilix. And I had um, one of my grad students was developing new coatings for, for improving water separations. And we suddenly realized that these coatings, which were hydrophilic, prevented things like bacteria from sticking. And so one of the problems, if you go into hospitals, is hospital acquired infections. And so basically, if you have a, a material that's put in your body, could be a catheter, it can attract bacteria, they can colonize. And the next thing you know, very quickly, within hours to days, you get a massive infection. And it's a real problem. So we started coding medical devices and we found out that our materials, they don't kill anything, but they prevent any colonies from forming. And so basically we believe that they're much safer and we we're developing ways of coding plastics. So we already started coding catheters. We got the FDA um, clearance to use these. And so now we're doing a study and putting these coded catheters into patients. And we believe it will show that it will reduce the rate of infection. So I'm very excited about that because besides catheters, there's hundreds of other medical devices that we could coat. You could, you know, use this from everything from contact lenses to you, you name it, where you could improve the the quality of things. And so this is, it's, it's a very exciting um, material property. And do we face a similar 
scaling problem that we do with graphene energy storage here? Yeah, whenever you deal with anything involving chemistry, the question is, is it safe and can you scale it? Well, of course, in order to get FDA clearance, we had to demonstrate that this stuff was absolutely safe. And we believe we've solved the problem on how to scale it. We believe we can massively scale this material. Now, right now, the price is such that medical devices makes the most sense because if you can improve a medical device, if you can prevent hospital acquired infections, that solves a, a massive problem and the cost is worth it. Whether you can scale it enough to Im improve membranes that separate um, you know, salt from water and stuff, that, that's a different scale of a problem. But we think that once we introduce it in medical devices, as we scale this and introduce it in more and more products, that the price will continue to drop and therefore it will become useful in all sorts of materials. And uh, we, we've even demonstrated that you can take um, certain kinds of plastics like silicone that are very tacky and you can make them so that they're not tacky at all. And so there's a lot of applications you can imagine for that, just, just improving the properties of plastics. And what's the timeline with this technology? When do you think it might be mainstream in the medical industry? Well, first we have to do our, our clinical study. And so hopefully in the next year, we'll have clinical results. At that point, I think a lot of the medical device companies will get very excited about this because it solves some massive problems that they, that they have. I mean, even UCLA had this problem with, with scopes that were becoming infected and, and many people, several people died from from this. And so they have to go through these huge processes to when they when they put things in and take them out of your body to if they're going to reuse them to purify them again. If we had a coating that prevented all that. And I've even visited patients at, at the UCLA hospital where they have these um, blood oxygen machines that can keep people alive. But they have to put in lots of blood thinners because they're, they're worried about clots, things like heparin and and it'd be nice if they could reduce the amount of drugs that were needed for these patients. And so if we could line all the plastic equipment, we could reduce the amount of clotting that occurs in the, in the amount of things that, that are needed. So all these things will come together. What will happen is, as I said, in the next year, hopefully we'll prove the efficacy of these things and then come up with some deals with manufacturers and, and companies that, that use these products. And so hopefully you'll start seeing them within the next few years. You probably won't know that you're, you're seeing them, but things will get a lot better. Things will be safer. The amount of hospital acquired infections will start dropping. That's our goal. Right. And the most world changing things we oftentimes like, you don't even hear them, hear about them. It's the, the silent heroes. Uh, and it's interesting. It's crazy how wide reaching research in material science can be like, or really any research. Like we've been talking about everything from energy storage to climate change to the medical industry. It's fascinating. I'll move on into a question that is one of my favorite questions, uh, because I get to explore a little bit of your science, scientific mind, but also your creativity and your, your vision. If you had a magic wand, and this magic wand was the best grant writer that existed such that with this magic wand you could fund absolutely any endeavor 
of your choosing. What would you choose? And in your ideal situation, how would it affect human technology? Boy, that's, that's a tough question. Um, I'll probably fall back on what, what others have thought of. I mean, you know, this planet's becoming crowded. I, I would love to be able to have a colony on another planet. And so funding research that enables that. So from my perspective, that is making the materials. You've talked about graphene and space elevators. It would be nice to improve materials to the point where we could conceive of such things as, as space elevators. So instead of burning all these fuels to launch a rocket that we literally lifted something up and just shoved it into space with a little bit of effort. And so everything that goes into colonizing another planet is things we should be working on. So, you know, you, you may like Elon Musk, you may not like him because of uh, his, his style, but he, but he certainly has a vision. And that vision is to develop things to go to other planets. And so I, you know, support that vision because I think, I think we need that. We also need something that everybody on earth can get around, which is, I, I, every, I think everybody gets excited when we send astronauts to the moon, when we send rovers to Mars, when we ultimately send astronauts to, to other planets. And I, I think that's something that will help the world if we can all get together and, and work on that, Ho hopefully together. But even if it's a competition, it's, it's a useful competition better than build, building weapons. Yeah, agreed. That's something that excites me deeply. And I, I really hope that by the end of my lifetime, I see some really wild stuff. Like right now I go to my grandfather's house and I'm t teaching him about cells because he's he didn't really get to go to school. But like, you know, the idea of cells in the body, they it just blows his mind. He can't really fathom it, let alone the technology behind like a rocket ship, for instance. So I'm really hoping that I get mind blown just in, in the same way. When, when I'm 80, I get to see some technology that looks like straight magic. You said that, uh, that that's something everybody can get behind space travel. You know, I've actually, I agree with that. And I mean, that's my perspective, but I've heard of some people who are like, no, we shouldn't go into outer space. Like we have so much work to do here. We need to save this planet. And my whole thing is why not do both? Like we need to save this planet. Obviously we need a home here, but if we want to be a long-term civilization that lasts like thousands of years from now, we need insurance. We need to be a multi-planetary civilization. I wonder what would you what would you respond to people who say that we shouldn't expend energy focusing on outer space when our home planet is in distress? So if you think about people throughout history, they've always dreamed about space. They've always looked up to space, and so it's something we have to explore. It's the it's the human condition, the human mind to look beyond ourselves. And so, yes, we need to do everything we can to improve our planet. But unless we have this vision to go beyond, we, we won't make the kind of progress. And in fact, a lot of the things from space exploration have turned out to be very useful back home. If you think about like GPS, it all depends on satellites, but we take it for granted. You know, when I was growing up, you could actually get lost. I would be going someplace and I never knew if I was going to get there. I would be 
heading, even when I was an assistant professor, I'm heading to the airport and I wasn't sure I was going to the right place. I wasn't sure I was going to make it. I remember once I was at a, a conference in Israel, I was invited to give this lecture and I had no idea where I was, couldn't read the, the signs. I stopped twice. Two people told me to go in different directions. My host called me and said, are you going to be there? You know, do, or do we have to cancel this seminar? And I and just, uh, I looked up and there was a sign, it was the exit. And I said, yeah, I'm at this place and I, I, I got there. But, you know, today, no one has this idea of being lost. Why? Because you have this phone in your pocket that will tell you exactly how to get there and when you're going to get there, which takes, which relieves a huge amount of anxiety. But that didn't used to exist. So these are important things. And that came directly out of the space program because we need to have satellites up there that are beaming things down. We just don't think about how that works. A lot of new materials have come out of working in space. So it's important, you know, there, there's a good answer to that. Yeah, of course, it, it's sometimes hard to fathom wasting or spending, I shouldn't say wasting, but spending hundreds of billions of dollars to explore space. But the payoff is so large that we get the money back in spades. Right. I can resonate with that. I was born in the year 2000, if you can believe that. Yeah. And I've, I have never had to worry about that. I mean... You know, I didn't have my first phone until I was like 10, but yeah, I can just right now launch myself eastward all the way to the other side of the United States and not worry about where the heck I am. So I can just open up my phone and it tells me exactly where I am. That's a privilege. Uh, and I think it, that trend will continue. You know, like we have things that are science fiction right now that in a few decades, a few years will be stuff of like, you know, everyday world. And eventually you'll take those things for granted as well. I'm going to move into a segment of my show that, um, in which I ask you questions that my listeners have sent me. So they knew I was going to interview you, and uh, they knew your background. And so I have some questions from my listeners, if you would answer them. Sure. My friend Isaac Diaz, actually my best friend, he, he graduated 2020, um, chemistry, material science, and he asks, where do you envision human technology will be during the age of magnetism in which we discover or invent a room temperature superconductor? Oh, that's a very cool question. So superconductors have some amazing properties. One is you can move electricity around without any loss, which will be great for green energy. But what most people get excited about is you can levitate a magnet above a superconductor. So you can have a levitated train that has no resistance to the track. And all you need, you still need to, to overcome wind resistance, but you can have very high speed trains. And these actually exist. There's a levitated train in China. There's a test track in Japan. There's one in Germany. And so these trains are extremely efficient. You can send them 300 miles an hour or so. And one of the questions that people looked at is if we build one in the US, where would we go? And you may say, well, from Los Angeles to the Bay Area would be a good place to go. But in fact, the most lucrative route is from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, because people, you know, flying takes some time to go to the airport, driving takes a long time. But if you had a high speed train, that would probably work. But the investment's quite high. So anyway, that's just some what, what could happen in the very near future. 
But if you have superconductors, there's all sorts of things you can do. And it would probably improve space travel. It would probably improve propulsion. It would certainly improve um, the storage of information. So you could build supercomputers using these um, superconductors and you can uh, store much more information. And, you know, I talked about the Dick Tracy watch, which we now, you, which you can buy for a totally reasonable price. But as you get more and more information, imagine what you can do. So in a few years, you probably will be able to speak foreign languages just simply because you'll have a computer interface to your brain, which will enable you to speak whatever you want and to understand what's ever coming at you. And I'll be very happy because I was never very good at languages. Um, and I was always envious of those people who could just pick up a language just like that. And so I, I look forward to the day when, when I can just put on headphones or, or some attachment that you won't even see, and it will help me speak that language or understand that language. So I think we're gonna see a lot of things. And I think as we improve, everything you know, speeds up, including research. And the more that research speeds up, the more we discover. And there's plenty of things out there to discover. I have a little uh, thing that was sent to me on my wall. It's from the head of the patent examiner from around 1880. And there's a quote where he says, he had, he had looked at so many patents coming in, he said, you know, we're just about to the point where everything that's ever going to be discovered has been discovered. And so one has to realize that technology is accelerating. And it's accelerating because as we have more information, as we put more money into research, things come back and, and we get further along. So I would love to see room temperature superconductors. They'll enable these levitated trains. They'll enable high-speed transmission of power, which is extremely important. And they'll enable high-speed computing, much higher than we've seen so far. And there's a lot of very cool applications of that. I bet you that's like much closer to us than than we think. And I, you talk about this with like with people, and some people are very skeptical. You know, there will always be people like that, people who uh, deny the existence or the possibility of an airplane, for instance. But it's just fascinating to think how rapidly technology is in, improving and how rapidly it is. The rate of it is increasing as well. Like just think back fifty years ago, you know, the cell phone was invented. And now, 50 years later, we have like an iPhone 11, like the super powerful computer in your palm of your hand. What's more is that the rate of technological advancement is actually increasing. So you have no idea what the world's going to look like 50 years from now, let alone like a thousand years, what 10,000 years, if we make it that long. It's stuff of, of magic. We're going to move on to the next question. This is from anonymous and the question is where do you see the world in 50 years yeah well i think it was yogi berra said that of all the things the future is the hardest to predict so i have no idea what the future will look like 50 years from now and i think most of us are influenced by the movies and so you either have this dystopian vision of what the world will look like or you know you you're thinking we're going to end up like Hunger Games or something like that. So it's it's really hard to know. I am um, I hope that the world becomes a more peaceful place that people figure out how to coexist. 
and that technology propels us so that we're making more and more advances. I, I hope we alleviate all the hunger in the world. It seems like we figured out how to grow enough food for everybody and that the problem is one of distribution. And that seems to be the case with economics too. There's, there's plenty of money to go around. It's just not distributed very well. So I hope we figure out social systems that work for more people and, and, and things improve. The other thing I worry about is people's mental health because as things physically improve, people have time to sit around contemplating. You know, if you go ask your grandparents, they probably worked all the time. They didn't worry about their mental health, generally speaking, because they were trying to exist. And now we have plenty of time to, to do stuff. And we realize that a lot of us are, are miserable. And so I hope we figure out more about the human condition and what makes people happy. And usually what makes people happy is not, is, is not that they have a pile of money, but that they work at something productive and they have a goal in mind and, and it's the, the going after that goal and not necessarily achieving it. It's nice to achieve something, but, but it's really the process of getting there. So I'm hoping things like mental health improve in the future and we understand more about the human brain and, and how we can alleviate a lot of the suffering in the world. Yes, it seems like there's quite the mismatch between the behaviors that the human body and brain were evolved to do and the what, what the environment is right now. Like, you know, like you said, we're evolved to act, to do, to work towards some goal. But right now, in at least first world countries, it is possible to have a very, like, easy life. You're not running from a tiger. You're not hungry you're not looking for your food you don't have to hunt and so that leaves a lot of time in which we sit around and we, we look at social media or something and our biggest worry is the acceptance of our peers and the acceptance of our, of our peers not just in, in person but like likes on some social media i too hope that we learn more about that and we discover ways to implement these solutions into the mass public because there's so many people suffering from mental health issues right now. And it just seems like it's getting worse. Like, every, mo I, f I feel like everyone knows somebody who's on antidepressants. And that's such a big problem. And I, I wonder, like, there needs to be more holistic ways of, of addressing this. Right now, like, people are, people are depressed. And what they do is, like, b before the doctor even prescribes exercise or, like, looks into the lifestyle for instance, they prescribe this this molecule that was supposed to just fix you. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a lot of work to be done there. But I, I too am optimistic for the future, and I, I hope technology will uh, be on our side in the evolution of man. Okay, I'll give you one more question, and well, actually, there'll be a few more questions. But uh, this is the last one uh, that somebody has submitted. I have submitted this one to myself. And this is one of my favorite questions to ask because I am all about learning from people who know more than me. I recognize that I do not know everything I need to know. I'm not as wise as I could be. And my goal is to learn in life and to, to grow as wise as I can. So one of my favorite things to do is to ask older people or anybody, really younger people, for um, some advice for like, what, what is something you have discovered 
in this journey that we call life? What is some insight that you might share that will help me um, help me live a, a better life? And so I will paint for you this scenario. You go back. You imagine you went back in time to your freshman year in college, and you're walking along in Brown University. This is your your undergraduate college, and you find your 20 year old self sitting on a bench. And you have about two minutes, more or less. You know, take your time. Two minutes to give him the advice that you think is going to better his life. What do you tell him? So one of the things I've already told you, which is one realizes that when you come to a decision point in your life, when you have to weigh a couple options, do I choose this job or that job? Do I go to this school or that school? That if you, if those things seem to be equal, they probably are, and either one is a good decision. So one should, once one makes a decision, one should be happy with that decision because it was probably the right decision. I also tell my own students when they're applying for a job that the question is not whether you want the job. When you apply for a job, the, the thing is to get the job. That's your goal. Once you're offered the job, then you can go visit, you can decide, is this the job that I wanted? Is this the place that I wanna be? And so on. And so that's probably true with a lot of things that one should look at the goal when you achieve it, then start asking the difficult questions. Is this what I really wanna do? Is this the way I really wanna go? And from that, you can figure out a lot about yourself and what you're really interested in, what you really wanna do. And so I think that is the kind of advice that I would offer to myself and therefore I offer to anybody else who's, who's, who's interested. The other thing I would say is, as you said, you don't know everything. I don't know everything. There's a lot of smart people out there, especially at UCLA. There's a lot of smart people. In fact, most people are in some area are smarter than anybody else. They know things that you don't know. They may have insights into themselves. They have, may, may have insights into others. They may know some scientific thing. They may know some philosophical thing. So the more people you talk to, the more information you get, the more you learn. And you can learn something from anybody. It could be the, the person you know, who cleans up after you. It could be the person who's serving you at the restaurant. There's things that they don't know, that you don't know, but they do. And so you should always look at every opportunity when you meet people as an opportunity to learn something. And if you keep an open mind, you'll, you'll, you'll learn an awful lot. Learning from others is, is a powerful thing. And once again, that, that's, I think, one of the greatest things that humans have available to them is the ability to learn from each other and to build off of their ancestors and their peers experience rather than like a salmon living off, you know, the only insights you make are the ones that you directly experience. So that's a beautiful thing. I think for everybody listening out there and, and I guess yourself as well, um, if I were to be asked that question, well, first I am 20 years old, um, but I don't know if I can go back five years and tell myself something. I think would be to recognize that the world is a playground. Sometimes it may seem that, you know, you're, you're on a strict path with very little freedom to explore. I would tell myself, like, look up, like, zoom out a little bit and see where you are. You're in the world, land of opportunities, and just start moving around laterally, up and down, run, slow down. For me, like I said earlier, 
the university experience like UCLA, it's much more than just the classes I take. It's the experiences I have, the people I meet, and I think I'm going to be okay. Like I, I trust myself to, you know, do the right things to be able to feed myself in the future, to help my family, to do what I must. But I, I, I mustn't take this so seriously. Like we have to play and we have to explore and just kind of um, think outside the box a little bit. And really, th I guess this interview is a little representative of that. I've never taken your class. Hadn't met you before this, but I found out about you. I thought you were interesting and I wanted to have a conversation. And more and more, I'm trying to lean into that discomfort of like the unknowing. Like, I don't know how this is going to go, but I know that if I do it, it'll be good for me and it'll be fun and that I really want to do it. And who says I shouldn't? Who says it's not available to me? For anybody out there, um, maybe you needed to hear that. Maybe uh, that will help you in your life. Lean into the discomfort and really just trust yourself. Launch yourself into the dark abyss and discover that there's a bed of feathers at the end waiting for you. Well, this has been pretty fascinating. It's been a, a broad scope conversation as, as usual. Uh, I do like to talk about a wide range of things, but I want to thank you for coming on. And is there any last words you would you have for my audience, um, who again are largely UCLA undergrads, as well as, well as undergrads from other schools, um, some graduate students, some other faculty as well. So any last words? So UCLA is a wonderful place. It's a great place to be an undergrad, a grad student, a professor. But what I do encourage the undergraduates to do, it's a very large place. And so sometimes it seems very impersonal. So I encourage you to talk to your professors. And I especially encourage you to consider getting involved in research. Um, that's how I got to where I am, getting involved early on. It's often very difficult because you can knock on people's doors and you know, you're gonna get turned down 10 times. Nobody has an opening. But if you keep inquiring, if you ask your friends who they work for, if you ask those people if they know of anybody else, you can usually find a position and not everybody, research isn't for everybody. And until you try it, you won't know if it's for you. But uh, I encourage you to do that or, or to follow whatever your passion is. So thank you. I enjoyed this interview and I really like your podcast. It's great to meet you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elder Llama podcast. This is what the show is all about. It's sitting down with the brilliant minds of the UCLA network and having conversations about a wide range of topics. The UCLA community is a hotspot of genius and it's my intention to explore that genius and share it with you. If that sounds cool to you, Consider subscribing on whatever platform you're listening to this. And if you want to interact with me, ask questions, suggest ideas, follow me on Instagram at Elder Lama. <laughs>